Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for the fourth Sunday of Easter, May 8th, 2022. And today we're looking back at a lesson we've covered once before back last summer from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 24, an early story in the life of the prophet Elijah. Now, just to set the stage, there's a united kingdom of Israel for three whole kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes over the throne. And Rehoboam is a foolish ruler who manages to annoy and anger the northern ten tribes of the kingdom of Israel. And so they split off and become the northern kingdom, which becomes known as Israel. And then the tribe of Judah as well as the tribe of Benjamin, remain together as a southern kingdom known as the kingdom of Judah. So the kingdom of Israel is only united for a brief time, after which it's divided into two kingdoms that don't like each other very much. And up in the north, the first king, Jeroboam, sets up two golden calves for worship, and from then on, The religious life of the northern kingdom is all downhill. The northern kingdom will never have a repentant king who tries to lead the people back to God. Every now and then, down in the southern kingdom in Judah, a righteous king, a humble king who repents, will arise and and start to establish reforms. But the northern kingdom never has a godly king after the kingdoms divide. Now, this story takes place when Ahab is king of Israel, and the story takes place in the northern kingdom. Ahab is the eighth king of the north since the kingdom divided, and it hasn't been that long. But the kings of the north are not only unrepentant, but they're often short-lived And they're often killed by somebody else, either in war or by some sort of palace intrigue. So the northern kingdom is already on its eighth king, while in contrast, the south is on its fourth king. This is about the time of Hezekiah down south. But the northern kingdom has been wicked and violent, and Ahab is one of the worst kings who will reign in the north, he and his wife, the queen, Jezebel. And so we get to 1 Kings chapter 17. Elijah makes his appearance in Scripture as the prophet for the first time at the start of 1 Kings 17. And this starts at verse 8. So so this is very early on in the story of Elijah. And as his story begins in 1 Kings 17, he appears to warn Ahab that a drought is coming. And that drought is because of Ahab's wickedness and the wickedness of the kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes. So Elijah warns that Ahab and Israel are about to suffer from a period of extended drought. And then at God's command, he flees. And he runs away to the brook Cherith, which we're told is east of the Jordan River. 
And there he is fed by ravens with bread and meat until God tells him to move on again. Now we'll stop there for just a second because if Elijah is in fact east of the Jordan River, he's no longer within the Old Testament promised land, which means he's out in the wilderness. And there God cares for Elijah through ravens who bring him bread and meat. I bring that up because this this takes us back to the time that the, the, the nation of Israel was in the wilderness coming out of Egypt. And, and when they grew hungry in the wilderness, uh, God fed them with bread and meat, bread and quail. And now here's Elijah in the wilderness and God cares for him too, just as he points to Jesus who will be in the wilderness tempted by the devil, after which angels will, will feed Jesus too. So just kind of um, not coincidental coincidences that Elijah in the wilderness being fed by God to point to Christ. Eventually, though, Elijah has to move on because this is a drought and the brook Cherith where he's camped out, it dries up. And this is where we arrive at our story for today. Beginning at verse 8, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to him, came to Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So when Elijah has to move because there's no water left in the brook, God commands him to go to Zarephath. Now, Zarephath is way up north. It's past Tyre and Sidon, which means it's way up in Gentile country. It's way up in Canaanite country. So you would not expect to find a lot of love for a prophet of God in or around Zarephath. But God assures Elijah that he has already talked to, somehow communicated with a widow who lives there and has told her to take care of the prophet Elijah when he arrives. So as Elijah heads up north, he knows that there's, there's a place and food waiting for him. So we continue with verse 10. So he, Elijah, arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and for my son, that we may eat it and die. All right, so when Elijah arrives at Zarephath and gets to the city gates, he sees this widow picking up sticks, and he knows by the grace of God that this is the one. And so he is, he is quite forward in asking her for water and bread. He's not being rude. He's been told by God that there's a widow there who's been commanded to feed him, and so he's, he's ready to eat. And when he asks her for water, she, she turns to get it right away. But when he asks for bread, 
she, uh, she pauses. She's almost out of flour. She's close to starvation along with her son. And she begins by saying, as the Lord your God lives, which is, by the way, a true statement, the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God, does live. It's interesting here that the widow calls God the Lord, your God. So she acknowledges that Elijah's God is the one who lives. And in doing so, affirms that she is aware of him, that he has, in fact, communicated with her. God has. But she says, as the Lord, your God, lives, I have nothing baked only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. They're almost out. And now she says, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. So this woman has no hope because she's out of food. And so she's sure that she and her son are about to starve. We pick it up in verse 13. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So Elijah answers her fear by saying, do not fear. But more than that, he foretells a miracle. In other words, not don't be afraid. I'm sure God will take care of this. But he tells her what is going to happen. The flour and oil will not run out until the rains return upon the earth. So he says, make a, make a cake of bread for me first. Bring it to me, then make something for yourself and your son. He directs her to, uh, to, to trust in the promise, even to the point of giving food to him before she gets any for herself and her son. But we read in verse 15, And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. Um, it's, it's not so clear in the English But while Elijah might have been served bread first, she eats first. Um, She eats, then he and her household eat. So so while um, Elijah commanded her to make bread for her, for him first, it wasn't um, some sort of selfish hunger thing going on. It was rather instead an exercise in trust. And as Elijah does serve the living God, he makes sure that she has bread before he does. And we read in verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent, neither neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So here we have a hungry widow, her son, and Elijah. There's no food to be found until Elijah speaks God's word and then the jar of oil is not spent, and the jug of oil does not, does not empty out as long as the famine and drought last. And this is, of course, another type of Christ. 
because Christ finds a, a crowd in the wilderness, has them sit down, feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Later on, feeds 4,000 with just a few loaves and fish as well. And so there, when Jesus feeds them, the, uh, the word incarnate, the word made flesh is doing the feeding. Here for Elijah and the widow and her son, the flour and the oil remain because uh, Elijah has spoken the word of the Lord. And this happens according to the word of the Lord, because the word of the Lord is powerful stuff. So as Elijah speaks the, the word of God and the oil and flour do not run out. So also God performs a similar miracle at our altar when, when his word is spoken and uh, we receive not just bread and wine, but, but, but his body and blood too. So, so this miracle of food points to Jesus uh, as Elijah and the widow and her son eat. And uh, a much similar miracle gives us Jesus as God's word delivers Christ's body and blood to us in with and under that bread and wine. So the uh, the widow has said, as the Lord your God lives, there's no food. And Elijah responds, the Lord my God does live, and now there is food. And so there's food for the household as long as the famine lasts. That's the first miracle. But they're still in a sinful world where bad things happen. So we find out that next, the widow's son becomes ill. So reading in verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Now, that's kind of a funny way of saying that the widow's son died. There was no breath left in him. But something kind of interesting is going on here, and that is in verses 17 through 22, there are quite a few key words in these verses that might jump out, might not, but they're words that this chapter shares with Genesis chapters 1 through 3. We've had one already, and that's the word breath. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam has no breath until God breathes into him. And likewise, here where the sun has no breath, Elijah will breathe life back into him or give breath back to him, I should say, as a miracle given by God. But now I'm getting ahead of myself, so, so, so let us move back here. I'll point out a few words along the way that, that this text shares with Genesis 1 through 3 to say that the Lord who lives and the Lord who gives life, the same Lord who created in Genesis 1, is also at work here in 1 Kings 17. So in verse 18, because there's no breath left in the boy, the widow said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Now the word death there is the same word that we have for, for, for death and dying in Genesis chapter 3. So that connects the Lord of life uh, in Genesis 3 to this chapter as well. As, as the widow says, my son has clearly died because I've sinned and the wages of sin is death. So the widow here has the idea that God is punishing her for some sin she's committed by taking the life of her son. 
We, we know it doesn't work that way, but people often think that way. One time in the Gospels, the disciples see a blind man and say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this blind man or his parents, that he was born blind? So there's always a temptation to see a sin having a clear cause and effect that if I suffer for something, it's because God is punishing me for some specific transgression on my part. But there is no proof at all that God works that way. In fact, God declares he doesn't work that way. He works by grace and forgiveness in Christ. What a comfort that is. So the woman says, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him up from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. So a few words here in these verses, uh, the word for killing, the word for life, the word for voice. These words you can also find in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 to tie that chapter into this one. Now, um, one more thing about, about the widow saying, um, you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. We, we should keep this in mind as Christians because sometimes people don't want to speak with a pastor or even a Christian because they know they've done something wrong and they're afraid if they're talking to someone who follows God, then they'll get God's attention and God will, will judge them for it. Um, so as we reach out to people, uh, we, we still want to, to do our best to befriend them, but be aware that sometimes people will, re, will, will not want to hang around because they they're afraid that they'll get God's attention for something they've done. That's why we always want to be about, be about preaching forgiveness and grace to, to whoever will listen. Anyways, um, the, the, the widow accuses Elijah of, of coming there so God will notice her and kill her son for her sin. And he says to her, give me your son. And he carries the child up into the upper chamber where he lodges um, so as a separate spot, maybe as a quiet spot, it also does us a little bit of a favor here to, to, uh, to let us know that Elijah, he's got separate sleeping quarters from the widow. They're, they're not cohabitating. Um, they're, they're, they're living chaste and decent lives as God would expect his prophets to do and as God would command his prophets to do. Then he cries to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And that's a, a question that doesn't really get an answer. But it is an expression of amazement on Elijah's part. Lord, first you use this widow to take care of me, or you honor this widow to serve you by serving me, and now you take her son away? Then we read, he stretched himself upon the child three times. 
And uh, the scriptures don't tell us why Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times. But commentary suggests that he does this because he firmly believes in the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are all there from Genesis 1 on. And so, uh, of course, Elijah would know about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it appears he, uh, he acknowledges that as he intercedes for for this child three times. As he stretches himself upon the child, he prays, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And again, voice here is a, uh, is a word that you also find in Genesis chapter 3. There, when Adam and Eve are, are dying... Slowly, but they're dying because of their sin. They hear the voice of God crying out as he walks in the garden to find them. And here we hear the voice of Elijah interceding to God to save one who is dead, the widow's son. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. So the Lord answers the prayer. He gives this child life. And this is the first resurrection recorded in Scripture. This is the first time that someone who is a victim of sin, who has died, is raised back to life. Hey, one more thing before I I get too far ahead and forget this. Elijah keeps beginning his prayers by saying, O Lord, my God. And um, that is actually the meaning of, of Elijah's name. Eli, my God, Yahweh, Yah, my Lord. Um, Elijah would be my God, the Lord, or, O Lord, my God. And so as, as Elijah intercedes for this child, he is, he is fulfilling the name that is given him. But back to, uh, back to the text, this child is raised from the dead, the first resurrection in Scripture, verse 23, And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So the woman has been on the fence before. Remember, as as surely as the Lord your God lives. And then she accuses Elijah that because he has come to her house, God has noticed her and her sin and taken her son. And now that her son lives, she says, now I know that you're the man of God. And the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So it appears that she is growing in faith toward the Lord. So the second trial where she first thinks God is out to get here proves to be a trial that strengthens her faith. And her faith is strengthened because of the death and the resurrection of a son. And of course, this foreshadows Jesus Our faith is given and strengthened both because of the death and the resurrection of God's only begotten Son, the same Lord who raised this child in 1 Kings 17. This story also foreshadows 
the Gentiles believing in the New Testament. For the most part in the Old Testament, it's the Israelites for the people of God. Every now and then, a Gentile joins God's people. Uh, Ruth is a famous believer, a Moabitess who comes to mind. This woman too, this unlikely Canaanite woman in Zarephath, she, uh, she believes. And in fact, in Luke chapter 4, verse 26, Jesus mentions her to his, to the, to his neighbors in his, in his hometown. He, he goes back there to declare that he is the Messiah, that the Messiah has come, and they grumble against him. And he points out that, uh, that though Elijah was rejected by Israel and by King Ahab, still the widow at Zarephath believed, and even if they reject him, Jesus says, others will believe the Gentiles will believe. So, so this story points forward to the Gentiles of the New Testament believing in Jesus. And finally, we have this foreshadowing of the resurrection, not just of Jesus, God's only begotten son, but as Jesus raises this boy from the dead through Elijah, he also reminds us that our end is not death and grave but that he raises us from the dead too. He will on the last day. So as we hear this story from a long, long time ago, we rejoice the same miracles are for us, for Christ has died and Christ is risen to forgive us for our sins and to raise us up too. All right, with that, then that's a quick look at this passage from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 24. God grants you every blessing as you meditate upon this text some more. And God grants you every blessing if you're teaching this to others. And until we talk again, the peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen.